we're going to get into part two of our sermon series on the walk. And now, I don't know how many of you, just by, actually, let, let me ask this. By a show of hands, how many of you have a digital or hard copy of this little book called Steps to Christ in one form or another? Yeah? Awesome. Awesome. So if you don't, and if you need some access to it, we've got several in the back there, uh, or in the lobby, I should say. But um, I tell you what, having completed it for another time, another round, uh, just a few weeks ago, I've been so blessed, been so, so blessed by this, because um, I realized once again just how much I need Jesus. Yeah, so today we're getting into part two of it, Essential Steps to Knowing Jesus. Our goal throughout this series, and I, someone asked me how long is this series going to be, and I told them I don't know yet. Uh, we'll kind of figure that out as we go. There's 13 chapters to Steps of Christ. We're not going to necessarily study the book together, but the themes of it, I think, are worth studying together from Scripture. Um, hey, Jaden and Jacob, I'm going to ask, can you, come, can you guys come up here? Thanks. Thank you. Debbie's actually accompanying the um, Mile High Choir today at Littleton Church, so I can pray for them as they go. Can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can grab your Bible, too. Okay. So we're getting into uh, part two of this. Our goal is to have a real relationship with God through our time together, Um, and not just our times together, but hopefully it would spark a relationship with God that is continual on a personal level. Hold on one second. So um, if you'll go with me in your Bibles, we're going to go to John chapter 1. This is where we started it, you know, because we're kind of using the disciples' lives as kind of a case study, a case study of how they cultivated a relationship with God, what kinds of steps God himself took, him, took the, the disciples through. And last week we looked at John chapter 1, and we saw it, you know, the, the first impression of the disciples was not necessarily something that they saw, but it was something that they heard to see. Right? John chapter 1, if you're there in John chapter 1, verse 29, go ahead and say amen. Amen. All right. John chapter 1, verse 29, this was the first impression of the disciples. This is what they were called to see. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And last week we focused on that, that concept. When we behold the Lamb, what the disciples and what we are called to behold from the very get-go of a relationship with him is to behold his love. To behold his love as a sacrificial love, a love that takes the initiative first before we could ever do anything about it, and a love that already calls us his own. So this is the beautiful first impression, but the reality is that the first impression was not only about the love that God had for them, but that first impression, if you listen carefully, is also about our need for God to save us. So let me read that again. It says, Behold the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, in this first declaration, it's not only holding up the love of God through the sacrificial Lamb, but it's also holding up our desperate need for God to save who takes away the sin of the world. 
And this is really interesting. From Steps to Christ, this is kind of a long quote, so just bear with me. But see if you kind of follow along uh, the, the sentiment. It is not enough to perceive the loving kindness of God. Okay? Just, just kind of let that sink. It's not enough to perceive the loving kindness of God, to see the benevolence, the fatherly tenderness of his character. It's not enough to discern the wisdom and justice of his law. And you're thinking to yourself, well, these are really good things to behold. (laughs) These are really transforming things to perceive, like we talked about last week. But let's just kind of see where this goes. To see that it is founded upon the eternal principle of love. So even when we're seeing that God's law, that his, his requirements are really, the foundation of it is love itself, it's not enough. Paul the Apostle saw all of this when he exclaimed, I consent unto the law that it is good. So he saw it. He saw the love of God through the law. But he added, in the bitterness of his soul anguish and despair, I'm carnal, sold under sin. He longed for the purity, the righteousness to which in himself he was powerless to attain and cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's quoting from Romans chapter 7, I think verse 24 thereabouts. Such is the cry that has gone up from burdened hearts in all lands and in all ages. To all, there is but one answer. Behold the Lamb of God, the love of God which takes away the sin of the world. That actually satisfies the need of your heart and mine. Apparently, the kindling that fuels real relationship with God includes more than beholding the love of God, but it also includes being honest with our desperate need for God. I think that's why, just having read the the Beatitudes, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, does anybody remember what the first blessed is? The first blessed is, in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why does Jesus start with that? Because apparently at the very beginning of a real relationship with God starts with the soul poverty to realize that, our, our, our pockets are empty, so to speak, when it comes to our own spirituality. And he says that in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It's very interesting because that's the only uh, present tense promise. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? All the other ones, they say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. You know, things like that. But present tense blessing is for those who are impoverished in their soul. Yeah. And so what we're doing today is, is simply answering the question or asking the question, maybe we should say it that way. Do we know our need? <laughs> Do you know our need? Do you know how much you need Jesus? Because I believe Jesus knows our need. If we're in John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 1 verse 2, I'm sorry, it's not John chapter 1, John chapter 2. Go to John chapter 2. We're jumping ahead a little bit. To the very end of John chapter 2, verse 25. I'm sorry, I'll start in verse 24. The Bible says this, But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all what? He knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The question is, do you know your need? Do I know my need? Whether or not I know it, do you know who does? (laughs) Jesus does. He knows what's in us. John lets us know right off from the very beginning of this gospel that Jesus is the discerner of our hearts, that Jesus knows what's in us. 
do we even know what's in us? I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes I, I think we're, we deceive ourselves into thinking better of us than we actually are. I think that's what John 17, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it, he says. So in between John chapter 1 verse 29, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And between John 2.25, that Jesus knows what's in our hearts, there are three vivid experiences, three vivid pictures that helps us just kind of catch a glimpse of our need. And that's what we're going to look at today, the three pictures that Jesus puts right in front of the disciples back then and in front of us to help us recognize our needs. So let's, let's, uh, let's go for it. We're going to look at picture number one. It's in John chapter 1, verse 51. John chapter 1, verse 51. If your eyes are there, say, I'm there. Okay, if you remember this, we kind of talked a little bit about this last time. Uh, one by one, individuals are starting to follow along with Jesus. Uh, Philip, he starts following, and he says, you know what? I need to get my friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel is one of those. He kind of picks up along with him. Nathaniel says, oh boy, uh, what, what, what am I getting myself into? Is, is, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? Jesus sees Nathaniel coming. He says, oh now that's an Israelite indeed. That's somebody who truly loves the Lord. Nathaniel is blown away by this. He's not quite sure what to make of this. He says, Lord, how do you know me? Right? This is in, uh, this is in verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered, I said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Oh, you think that was cool, <laughs> right? <laughs> because I said to you, I, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe me? Check this out. You will see greater things than these. Well, what kinds of things? In verse 51, he said to him, Most assuredly, this is the first amen, amen, by the way, in John's uh, you know, gospel. We talked a lot about that a little bit. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, where? Upon the Son of Man. What in the world is Jesus saying? He's drawing a picture, a very, very vivid picture. It has some Old Testament roots, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But what I want us to see here, first of all, in verse 51, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open open. And that, that's just kind of a big deal because there, there are really two implications there. First of all, that heaven's openness had not previously been seen. If Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to see heaven open, that means they hadn't seen heaven opened, right? They hadn't discerned that heaven was open or at least open to them in some significant way. That is prior to Jesus' arrival, prior to beholding the Lamb of God, heaven had to them seemed closed. I don't know if you've ever felt that. If there's ever been a season in your life where you've ever felt that heaven was like an iron curtain between you and the Lord totally cut off from any sort of lifeline or hope beyond this world. Jacob felt that. Not, not my Jacob, but <laughs> Jacob of Genesis chapter 28, right? This is the imagery, the Old Testament imagery that Jesus is drawing from. Um, actually, it, it was a time where Jacob, he had deceived um, his father. 
His father Isaac, who is going blind, at the, at the suggestion of his mother, he went ahead and deceived his father so that he could obtain the birthright. And when you catch up to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, he is on the run. Why? Because Esau wants to take his life. He feels like, oh man, I, I got what I wanted, but really this isn't what I wanted. So he's on the run. He feels cut off from family. But you know what else? He feels cut off from the father. He feels cut off from home, but he feels cut off from heaven. And he literally has nothing. By the time he gets to, uh, you know, it's pro- I don't know what time, at night, it's pitch dark. He just lays down to rest, probably exhausted from all his traveling. And you know what he finds for a pillow? He finds a rock, right? And in Genesis chapter 28, verse 12, the Bible says that he dreamed. Behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. He was feeling cut off from home and ultimately from heaven, all because of his own selfish, unbelieving choices to take the promises of God and instead pridefully take them into his own hands. Right? This is kind of uh, Babylon that we were talking about. Uh, this is really, the, um, this is really the, the, the sense of, I've got this, even though I know this is... A, a divine purpose, or this is God's plan, I am going to do it in my power. I tell you what, heavenly purposes through human power never make a good combination. Right? That's, that's what you would call the wine of Babylon. Now, that is the confusing thing that eventually lands any one of us in a fallen state. All because of his own unselfish, unbelieving choices to take matters into his own hands rather than rest in the promise of God to provide for him. And I think this is an all too familiar reality because the love of self and trust in ourself, it severs us. It severs us from our true identity of belonging to and connection with the Father. And I don't know, maybe this is familiar to you in in, in a present season or maybe this is familiar to you in a past season Or maybe you're experiencing the symptoms of this. Maybe you're experiencing disconnect on a human level, um, just tensions on a human level. And I tell you what, those are always symptoms to a deeper need for reconnection with heaven. That's what it is. The real need is a connection to heaven, a restored connection to heaven. And so when Jesus, here in John chapter 1, when he is uh, bringing this before Nathaniel, he's drawing on this familiar imagery, he's drawing our attention to our need. Our need in terms of alienation and disconnection when we feel cut off from heaven. But he also beautifully underscores the the truth of the gospel. That when Jesus is here, he bridges the relational gap. When Jesus is here, he restores that connection we could never restore ourselves. Praise the Lord that he is the Lamb who doesn't just take away the sin of the world, which can sometimes be like a, a, uh, a vague, cosmic, like somewhere out there. No, behold the Lamb who takes away our severed connection from home. Yeah. Second picture. That's picture number one. A, a picture of a ladder, but it's not just a concrete ladder. It's Jesus himself, okay? That's connecting heaven and earth. Angels now uh, can, can ascend and descend because Jesus is here. He takes away our severed connection from home. All right, picture number two. Jump into John chapter two, and you've got this wedding. In verse one, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Verse two, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So here's Jesus 
He comes to a wedding. Weddings are supposed to be the most celebratory of human experiences that most closely reflects our connection to and commitment to God. Or maybe I should say God's connection to and commitment to us. Right? Really interesting, throughout the Gospels, whenever Jesus talks about a wedding, he's always talking about the future wedding of, of heaven. You know, in any of the parables, there's always a, an end time reference, an eschatological sentiment to it. So in other words, weddings are supposed to be a reflection of our marriage supper eventually with Jesus. A reminder of our blessed hope that, that we will have oneness with God once again. The paradise we lost will be restored. Praise the Lord. Okay? That's what weddings are supposed to be. But in this wedding, there's a shortcoming. In this physical, literal wedding, there's a lack, an insufficiency. You remember the story, right? Jesus is probably people watching, enjoying himself, you know, just kind of hanging out with his disciples. And someone comes up and says, hey, the wine has run out. Right? If this were a Filipino wedding, the rice has run out, you know. Um, you know, you just kind of imagine, oh, what, what, where does the party go? What's really, uh, where is that verse, by the way? Run out, run out, run out. Okay, verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Right? We can get into the dynamics of Jesus and his mother. What does he mean? My hour has not come, things like that. But here's what I want to focus on. Ran out. The verb itself is an experiential pointer to our need. Okay? Again, we're, we're looking at Jesus. We see his love, but we need to also see our need. And this is what Jesus is confronting with his disciples with from the very beginning. Run out. What's really interesting is that that verb, uh, the verb is, in Greek, I think it's hustereo. Um, and it's used several times throughout the New Testament, including the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember that parable? The story of the prodigal son? Took his inheritance, ran, left uh, his father's household. And while he's spending his money, it's not that that runs out. He eventually, there's a famine that comes into the land, and then it says that when he began to be in want. Right? I think I actually have it here. Luke 15, 14. There it is. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And the NIV says it pretty clearly. Then he began to be in need. He ran out. He ran out. The prodigal son began to be in want. In fact, it's used by Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. I love how the Amplified Version says this. Maybe you, you know this in a, in a different way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fall short. Uh, the Amplified Version says, since all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. Really, that's the sentiment. We are in a continual sense of need. We continually run out of the good stuff of anything that would supply our relationship with the Lord. The reality check here is the oneness that we are made for on the human level, but even more, I would say the, the oneness that we all long for with God himself is something that if we were left to ourselves, we would always fall short of obtaining. Always. In our human relationships and in our heavenly relationship. We don't have what it takes. That's what the prodigal son reminds us of. He began to be in need, and he kept being in need until he went home. <laughs> right? We continually fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans chapter 3. And this lack, this need, is something that only Jesus can supply. Only Jesus can supply. And you know how he did it? In this story, 
I mean, you remember, he takes water, turns it into wine. But do you know where that water was? They filled six water pots, specific water pots. Do you, do you remember? Verse 6. Now there were set there, this is John chapter 2, verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. In other words, he repurposed jars that were meant for ceremonial cleansing. Right? The ceremonial waters could not cleanse us enough to fulfill our lack. And what I see here is that our man-made rituals, of oh, they may be functional for outward cleansing, but inward satisfaction of soul is only brought about by that which represents the blood of Jesus. We can do all the cleansing we want, but soul satisfaction only comes from the blood of Jesus. <laughs> the blessed hope of oneness with God is only possible through the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb, the Lamb who takes away all our falling short all our running out, all our lack, all our external attempts to find soul satisfaction, the Lamb can take that away too. Amen. (laughs) All right, we've got two pictures. A ladder that connects heaven and earth. That's Jesus himself. A a wedding that's run out, but the blood of the Lamb supplies. And then the third picture is a temple that needs to be cleansed. Go with me to John chapter 2, verse 13. Verse 13, here's the third picture. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers worshiping the Lord Almighty. Is that what it says? My Bible says the money changers doing business. (laughs) Yeah, doing business. So how does Jesus respond? Oh man, this is, I, I would say this is not necessarily one of those bedtime stories, you know, especially here, the way that John describes it. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, when he does this later on in his ministry, he says, my father's house, you've made it into a den of thieves, but my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56 in those stories. Verse 17, then his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Woo! (laughs) So here, just draw the picture in your mind if you haven't already. It's upon arriving to the very place, the temple mount, the very place that should make it easy for people to behold the Lamb, right? The very place that should make it easy for people to behold and offer sacrifices in heart worship, but Jesus finds them bartering and selling sacrifices for material profit instead. Again, it's another pointer to our need. Our need, not, not necessarily in terms of alienation and disconnection. Our need, not necessarily in terms of what we run out of and our lack. But this time, it's our need in terms of what we fill our hearts with that substitutes for the real thing. We have this tendency to fill our heart temples with meaningless substitutes, with worthless imitations of what only God can be and give and satisfy. Now, of these three pictures, you know, the ladder, uh, the disconnected heaven, the heavens closed, you know, the, the, the wedding that's run out of wine, 
those two pictures, like you can sense that need. Like you know when heaven feels closed, right? You know when you're disconnected. You know when you've run out. But this need is one that you don't necessarily know you need. Because we fill our hearts with things under the guise of a form of godliness that makes it seem like it should be there. I don't know, maybe I'm talking a little too metaphorically here. But, I, I, you know, what are the meaningless substitutes, the things that imitate what only God himself can be for us, can give to us, can satisfy in our lives? You know, the zeal that Jesus demonstrates here is pretty strong, right? The disciples were remembering, it says, in the moment, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. I was looking that word up. And apparently, uh, zeal, uh, it's, it's kind of like an onoma, onomatopoeia, is that right? Onomatopoeia in, um, in the Greek language. If you know what an onomatopoeia is, it's like when you say ring, ring, it's a word that's supposed to sound like the very thing that you're describing. Okay, maybe I'm grammar nerd time. Okay, anyways. <laughs> um, but uh, in Greek, the word is zealous. That's what it is. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to sound like a boil. It's supposed to sound like water boiling because the word itself means to boil. It's so hot. God's, Jesus' passion is so hot. His, his, his desire for God's house is so ready to boil over. And in verse 15, out of that, that zeal, the Bible says he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple doesn't mean he started his Honda Accord and, you know, escorted them out. No, he drove them like he literally threw them out. It's the same word that's used to describe Jesus casting out demons, by the way. Very interesting. So whether we know it or not, all these monuments of self-centered, self-initiated, counterfeit worship need to be driven out, rebuked, thrown out, and it's only by the power of Jesus. Those meaningless substitutes, whether they were allowed in our lives by direct choice or by the choices of others, here's the truth. Our hearts need to be cleansed of it so that it can be filled again with what we were created for, relationship with God. So here in this third picture, we behold the Lamb who drives away all our substitutes for God. We behold the Lamb who who cleanses all the distractions from God that are disguised as worship of God. This is something that Jesus is zealous for. (laughs) This is something that Jesus is zealous for. And the question is, are we? In the eyes of Jesus, it's not something to be trifled with, something that angers him, especially when our self-worship and pride lurks beneath a cloak of religiosity. And this takes us all down to chapter 2, verse 25 again. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus knows all of this. He knows what's there. He knows what needs to be driven out. The question is, do we know it? (laughs) So if we were just to kind of summarize again, three pictures of our need. We've got a heaven that seems closed. A oneness that we fall short of and run out of. A temple that needs cleansing. Do you sense your need today? I don't know, maybe we sense this in multiple ways at multi- in, in, the, in the same time, but there are different seasons of our lives. And 
I just want to appeal to us today to do what the disciples did and behold the Lamb of God who takes away those needs. That sin, that closeness, that falling short, that the substitutes that we need cleansing from. You know, I've mentioned this in the past, but I just want to appeal to us again to do this if, if we don't have a daily practice of this, but to make a daily practice of beholding the cross. Whether it's... Um, you know, for me, what I've been doing lately is I've just been going to Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 to 54, and just reading the story of the cross. But as we do that, behold the cross to see his love for us, but also to see the need that required such great love. You know? I mean, we can look at the cross and say, wow, that was so extravagant. Was it really? That's what was needed to save my soul. Which tells me it's not just that God's love is so infinite. It's my need is so deep. The reason why he jumped from so far a height is because I was at so far a depth. Wow. The cross reveals the infinite love of God and the infinite need of our souls. And so if we can take time to be honest with that need every day, man, I think we're on the road to a walk with Jesus. (laughs) So how you sensed your need today? Do you feel cut off from God? You know, if, if heaven feels closed to you? Do you feel overwhelmed at times with a sense of your own lack? Like you just don't have what it takes to have a soul-satisfying life? Are you aware that you've filled your life with a mere form of godliness? And you've... Sometimes that's the hardest one, like I said, because we can feel completely content <laughs> with that. But if any of that resonates with you, I just want to appeal, just like John said here, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of my heart and yours. Only He can satisfy your need. Consider this, that the one who on the cross was literally forsaken, the one who felt that heaven was literally closed to him, who could not see beyond the portals of the tomb, even though he had prophesied it and predicted it in the past, He was the one who takes away the sin of, oh, of our world. Sorry, (laughs) it's okay. (laughs) He's the one who takes away all that makes heaven's doors feel closed and shut. He's the one that takes away that self-trust and unbelief, the taking matters into our own hands that alienates us from heaven. (sighs) All because he was forsaken. Man, consider this, that the one who, who gave himself until he had nothing left to give, like it says in Matthew chapter 27, I think it's in verse, oh man. Oh. Anyways, in that story of the cross, it says he, he yielded up his spirit. And if there was more to yield, he would have yielded it. The one for whom everything was literally run out, he takes away all our running out. <laughs> he takes away all our unsatisfying efforts to make our relationships whole. All that falls short of his glory. And consider the one who was arrested by the very people who were content with their form of godliness, who prayed for the very ones. Forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. He's the one that takes away all that we substitute for God. He's the one who takes away all that needs to be cleansed from our heart, the form of godliness that just kind of shrouds us and insulates us from feeling any sense of need. He takes that away too. So simple question today. Do you want to behold the Lamb of God? Not just to see his love, but also to be honest with our need. And if that's your desire, 
you know, maybe we can try singing that chorus one more time. Um, I need thee, oh, I need thee. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just we want to be as honest as we possibly can. But even that sense of honesty, I think, is a gift from you. And so, Lord, today, whether, whether we know it or not, we confess our need. And we give you a green light to work in us a deeper sense of honesty with our own hearts. That out of a sense of need, we would always appreciate and receive the love of God. You know, last week we were praying for the divine capacity to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God. And today, God, we want to we offer a, a complimentary prayer. God, cause us to, to see your love in proportion to the capacity we have to perceive our need for that love. Lord, give us a full comprehension of how much we need you so that we can truly walk with Jesus. And so we surrender our disconnect. We surrender our insufficiency. And we surrender our substitutes. Thank you for being the one who takes all this away. Because we pray in the saving and powerful name of Jesus, let everyone say, Amen.